Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius. I am the host of Confronting the Madness. Today, I am speaking with City of Edmonton Police Chief Dale McPhee. Dale is one of the most transformational, system-oriented thinkers I have had the pleasure to speak with. He is an authentic and courageous leader doing the work for the right reasons. I think we are extremely fortunate to have him as our police chief, especially during these turbulent times. Dale and I spent a considerable amount of time discussing how we can recalibrate the social safety net ecosystem in an integrated, coordinated, collaborative, and sustainable fashion. I strongly encourage you all to take a look at the Edmonton Social Impact Audit Report developed by Dr. Elena Turner and her organization, HelpSeeker, helpseeker.org, if you are interested in exploring the topic further. And now I bring to you Dale McPhee. Uh, Chief Dale McPhee, well, welcome to Confronting the Madness. It's it's an honor and a privilege to have this discussion with you today. And uh, before before we dive in, I just want to give listeners a quick quick bio of your career. Um, you were sworn in as Edmonton's twenty third Chief of Police, February nineteen, following twenty six years as a as a police officer in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan where you served as chief for nine years. Our, our mutual friend, Dwayne Guru, calls PA, PA for paradise, just just so you know. Yeah, you were also deputy. Without, uh, you can't spell party without you, PA. That's the other one, yeah. You, can, yeah, you, can't, spell PA, you can't spell paradise without PA. Yeah. Uh, you were also deputy minister for, of corrections and policing in the Ministry of Justice for the Saskatchewan government from 2011 to 2014. You served as president and past president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. You've lectured both nationally and internationally on topics of leadership and change management in the private and, and public sector organizations. And mo most recently, which I'm interested in exploring more, you were appointed to the um, Governor of Alberta Addiction and Mental Health Advisory Council. And so I'm happy to have you on today because I'm really interested in systems and how we can recalibrate systems, uh, assess systems to try to really improve marginalized populations. And um, we'll get into that. But I just want to go back in time with you um, and talk a little bit about, you know, how you came to become the chief of police in Edmonton. So correct me if I'm wrong, you're born in Edmonton, moved to St. Albert, and then moved to PA. And I just want to mention this to the viewers because I don't think um, the listeners, you were a PA Raider, a Memorial Cup winner. And I want, I want to throw some stats out there for, for, for the listeners. 269 games played, 118 goals, 152 assists. And this is the one that stuck out for me most, and maybe 517 penalty minutes. So you kind of had the Gordie Howe thing going on there a little bit back in the day. 
that's just balance. You got to balance it, right? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a pre- that's a pretty good resume. If I'm, I do say so, so myself, you were also inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame and and played with the likes of Todd Nelson uh, in 1985, who went on to become the coach of the Edmonton Oilers for t- some time, and and Rich Pilon, someone who I knew from my time with Kids Sports Saskatchewan. Uh, you and I also have a close mutual friend, uh, Dwayne Guru, who is an exceptional athlete. He's also now in the Prince Albert Sports Hall of Fame. And uh, I believe he coached your, your three girls in soccer as well. So I'm, I, I'm sorry to hear that. I imagine uh, they learned some, some bad technique. Yeah, Dwayne is uh, he's, he's, a, he's a good coach. I mean, uh, and not only was he a great soccer player, but I saw that you and him have some stories there. But uh, was pretty good at multi uh, sport as well, multi-sport athlete. So he, whatever he picked up, uh, uh, you know, he seemed to seem to do okay at it for sure. Yeah, he, he, Dwayne was one of the best athletes um, I've ever seen. He was my favorite player to play with. My only critique was, A, he, he couldn't shoot, he, and B, he would only pass the ball sideways. But one quick story about Dwayne, because I know he'll love this just to boost his ego. He got called up to a professional soccer team we were playing on from the the junior ranks and uh, he played three games and he was the a league the professional league player of the week immediately that's how athletic he was anyways so we have a uh, saskatchewan connection and and, uh, another person i just wanted to mention briefly because i asked on social media any questions they had for the chief and there were a few but a mutual friend of ours uh, jennifer campo who was MLA um, for a period of time? Um, she 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 said some kind words about you and said that when you were chief in Prince Albert, you went above and beyond to make sure someone in Reman got access to their medications, and that you've done great work over the years. And she has all the respect in the world for you. And so, mm-hmm. as an Indigenous leader in Saskatchewan, um, I think that speaks speaks volumes to to your character. So. Um, I heard a quote from you, and it's not your quote, but I wanted to start here. You said in one of uh, one of your lectures, 90% of the people that are struggling are poor souls, and 10% are assholes. <laughs> and, then, and then you followed on to say, in a different quote, simply put, there are only two things that work. Reduce intake in the system, and then make sure every off-ramp works. Mental health, child welfare, addictions, and housing. And so, so my first question to you, I guess, is how is the system currently working from your perspective with the off-ramps you alluded to? Yeah, I know. It, first of all, Mark, that's quite the intro, and I hopefully you're not going to play that for Daryl because we'll never hear the end of it. Uh, <laughs> the second part of that, just getting to the quote, um, you know, I'm not going to deny that I, I used those words. That's for sure. But uh, you know, I think when uh, when you start to look at it, you know, we've looked at the system many different ways, and the system, the solutions, all we just got to do things faster. We got to do more of. We got to build more buildings. We got to do this, but. You know, the actual system in itself working from a collective impact perspective, you know, was fundamentally flawed. It has been for many years. And I think the reason that we can see that now, you know, if you go back, it's not to blame everybody. Back in the time when a lot of these systems were built, you didn't have access to data. You didn't have access to evidence. You didn't have access to facts. And people were just doing the best that they could do to obviously help people. 
now that's all changed. We have the ability to analyze, we have the ability to go deeper, yet we're using the same philosophy in, in a lot of cases. So when you talk about intake and you look at the system, if you take the criminal justice system, for, for mm -hmm. instance, police control 100% of intake. If police don't lay a charge, judges and prosecutors don't exist. Not that that means anything, but mm -hmm. if we don't do that analytics and analysis up front of who we need to put into the system, in other words, jail the people we're afraid of and not the ones we're mad at, then the system's flawed. Public health has the ability to do the same thing in the health environment, but yet we push it all to the back and, and the front ends of the systems are aligned. But then it gets worse when you talk about off-ramps, when you talk about, you know, you mentioned mental health, you talk about addictions, housing, homelessness, bail remand, and the list goes on. The system is designed to measure what we put into the system, but nobody actually measures how many people we create success and getting them out of the system, creating mm -hmm. independence, creating the ability for better lives. So you can't change that unless you actually have a look at the structure. Uh, and we unfortunately haven't got to that point yet. It ties into a whole bunch of different things. It talks about investing different, using your money different, using your people different. But I think to get to the root of what we really need to do is to, is to actually start to look at some of that data and actually start to measure success and not just count success on putting more people in. This is, if you don't address the intake, then your feeder system is better or bigger than uh, what you're successful at, eventually breaks the bank. And, and that's what we're seeing. And that's how government deficits are, are driven. Uh, being fortunate to be across this country, most US states and certainly across the world, most governments are, are running deficits because their expenditures, you know, COVID's exposed that even more. Uh, aren't aligned with their investments and in you know, a business environment, that's just the recipe for failure. So I think it's a big opportunity, but obviously it takes a lot of courage and a lot of leadership to take some of those steps. Yeah, and I guess I want to ask you about courage and leadership, but just to, just to carry on from that thread, when you were deputy minister within government, with the Saskatchewan government, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were brought in as as trying to trans. You're you're a transformative leader. You were trying to transform a system that needed to get up to the 21st century, and maybe talk through the trials and tribulations of being within a provincial government and trying to affect the kind of change that you're talking about today. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, my time in government, I think, taught me a lot. Um, you know, going from a police chief and a business uh, individual into government and looking at it and seeing some of the structures and some of the things that, you know, make it kind of very hard to turn. And it's kind of, some have said, you know, sometimes government's like the Titanic, very hard to pivot. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it's also a great learning ground and partially why I came back to policing. Uh, policing is the only autonomous voice. We need to actually embrace change. We need to lead change. But when you're inside, uh, sometimes you don't see it quite as clearly. Uh, when you get outside and you start to look at how things work together or they don't work together, I think you really start to see it. I've had a lot of aha moments in my career. <coughs> Some of them were uh, having both the transformational change file assigned by the Premier and then also the Ministry of Corrections and Policing, one of the things that we were looking at was overtime expenditures in corrections. And so mm -hmm. we hired some economists, some mathematicians to look at this, you know, and I'm basically at that time, I'm looking for a strategy uh, to basically reduce the costs. 
And what came back was kind of an aha moment when they sat and they met with me and they said, deputy, uh, trying to exactly remember the numbers on this, but you know, we found a few things and here's some things in relation to shifting you can do, but we think that if you actually let, are you still there? Yep. Oh, my screen went black, so I'm not sure what that is, but sorry about that. Uh, I'm just going to keep talking. Uh, One of the things that they said is, you know, deputy, we think if you let 11% of people out of jail, you might be able to expect a four or 5% uh, reduction in crime. Uh, And uh, to me, that was kind of uh, uh, something that uh, resonated and uh, certainly uh, was a bit of a game changer. Um, So that was one and there's several others. Can you can you say that again? You said that if you let eleven percent of people out of jail, you can expect a four to five percent reduction in crime. Yeah, the the keys to that though were is to let the right people out, right? So, right. <laughs> which means that you have to look at the analytics a little bit deeper in relation to the intake. And don't quote me exactly on those numbers, but it was a yeah, significant no. amount. But in, in policing that translate, if you put more people into the criminal justice system there's enough proof in corrections to say that if you um, uh, mix high risk and low risk individuals, they all become high risk, not a percentage, that's science. So Mm -hmm. I mean, with that said Mm -hmm. is, uh, it kind of makes you think differently. What are we going to do differently in this space? How are we gonna look at that? And I was also part of the Governor General's uh, leadership piece in 2004. And I was with, you know, the CFO of the Globe and Mail, VPs of various companies like the Bank of Montreal, senior leaderships of Shell uh, and some, you know, environmental folks and everything else. And it was to look at leadership on diversity and look at some of the things that we actually, the multi perspectives and the lenses that we bring at and how you can actually change the system if you get the right people in the room. The problem is, is a lot of times we try to do a lot of these things in isolation and sometimes just by investing in things with no measurable outcomes, sometimes mm-hmm. we make things worse. And, and I think that's mm-hmm. that's a real opportunity, but you know, it's one that needs to be embraced by, by leadership and, and it, it involves some risk, but the risk of failure is really what we have. I mean, we're dumping tons of money, tons of resources. You know, I look outside my window, I'm in my office right now and you know, in downtown Edmonton. And, you know, there's a lot of people struggling and mm-hmm. we got to do some things differently. We just can't double down on the same. And why did you choose the the job you're currently in? What was it that drew you to this opportunity at this time in your career? Yeah, when I was looking, <clears throat> decided to, to make a shift out of government, I wanted to, for me, it's about, you know, can we actually make a difference? What change can we lead? And there is some unique things about Edmonton. Government was located in in Edmonton. Uh, the city, you know, based on the, the the early work that I was doing and studying, was uh, working on open data. Not sure I, it was as far along as I thought it was. Um, it had, uh, you know, a, a very strong university in AI and machine learning at the U of A. It had some entrepreneurial spirit in the tech side and and it had a progressive police service that, you know, we could probably look at doing some things differently. So that was a real interest to me and say, okay, to go there and the the commission at the time uh, was recruiting for somebody to lead change. So that was kind of something at this point to your to your question is. I was looking for the challenge among anything else to make a difference because having been working in this field for probably over 12 years, uh, you know, as mentioned in the, in the preamble, being able to speak 
pretty much, you know, not only in every province, but nationally, internationally. This field is uh, ripe for change. And that other piece that really related to me is when I carried part of the file on social finance uh, as one of the senior deputies in, um, in Saskatchewan, I was actually in a room in Chicago a few years back and there was 500, over $500 billion in the room and, and 54 countries. And what I found is everybody in that room was struggling mm -hmm. on what are they going to do with their social issues because they're breaking the bank, people are struggling, mm -hmm. and yet everybody's trying to do more of the same. And that was some of the things in social finance, I think it was the Japanese government at the time, was actually uh, investing millions and millions of dollars leveraging dormant bank accounts to just lead innovation. And it just wow. made me think, man, this sector needs innovation. So it was just a point in time where I felt there was an opportunity to, to jump into it. And of course, then we get into COVID and everything else mm -hmm. that happened transferred around the world. Uh, I mean, both good and bad. It's uh, yeah. you certainly have taken a few on the chin, but I have taken a few on the chin as, as you've highlighted uh, before, but it's right. also the perfect environment to drive some change. And and do you think based on your your, your time here, and I, I, I guess I'm also interested in, you're, 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 the, you're the police chief, but you know, the, the work that you're doing in my mind is is expanding the scope to a degree um, from the traditional what I would think of as arrest the bad guys to you know a preventative model that works across sectors um, levels of government and and charities and and so what what prompted you and and maybe the the police. I'm not familiar with other chiefs across the country, but what prompted you to want to take on that mantle as someone that's more than just the traditional police chief? You know, honestly, because I think in just being bluntly and blatantly honest, I think police need to lead it. It's, it's, it's a not elected voice. Um, at the end of the day, if you look at police work and you break it down, it's broken into two buckets. There's there's the calls for service, which are highly overpopulated by your social issues. That's where a lot of your vulnerable. That's the stuff mm -hmm. you need to, in a lot of cases, divert from the system. And then there's crime. And in relation to crime, 50% of that pre-contact in the justice system, back when I was co-chairing StatsCan for about four years in the CCGS environment, that is the magic piece. You need to do both of those. You can't do just one or the other. And to say that we're going to send another entity to a call for service and you got meth and you got other things, a lot of those calls for service are dangerous and, and you have to be safe. And then who takes the lead to avoid the second and third and fourth calls? That's where the gold is. Everybody's focused on who takes the initial call. It's, mm -hmm. it's not the initial call that makes the difference. It's the connecting to services and the second and the third and the fourth call reducing that actually gets and makes the difference. In the crime part, in relation to that, that's not going away. I mean, Edmonton was unique because it has high social issues and it has mm -hmm. a high crime rate and has had 
for many, many years. And if we don't address both of those, if we just focus on one and move it all to the front end, you'll just be ran. And you're seeing some of that unfold now, unfortunately, in the U.S. with some of the things and some of the changes they made. Everybody's looking for the magic bullet. This is a long haul. This is leadership. This is focused on the mission and making sure you don't deviate from the mission. But if policing just wants to deal with one of those umbrellas, let's say the crime aspect, you're not really going to address it because anytime you look at criminal history and I had jails and I'd go into the jails and I'd see, you know, perhaps grandpa on the on the bottom bunk, dad on the top bunk and the you know and the grandson or the son in the next cell. A lot of stuff is generational. Mm -hmm. But you need to break a cycle. And the only way you break a cycle is when you actually deal with the serious crime and you try to off-lamp the olive branches that are going to feed the feeder system. And it's just like business. You have to know what feeds and what drives the work and then you work backwards. Ideally we all should be working at or working ourselves out of a job. We know that's not going to mm -hmm. happen. But the reality is we should be able to get 20% out of the system. If we can't, it just means that we don't have the right people in the room to do it. And that 20% just in the city of Edmonton here is a lot of money and a lot of lives. But everybody wants to fix everything. That doesn't happen overnight. We need some momentum and some wins. Mm -hmm. When, um, and it, it continues to a degree, but when defund the police was at its, at its height, um, Obviously, there are some people that literally meant like defund the police, but I think by and large, it was a symbol for for change. Do you think that that movement, in fact, is helping your argument um, for changing the culture of how police are perceived by the community? Or do you think that that was a net negative um, for, for, for the police around the world? Well, I mean, it impacted police because obviously it made things for us. We had already launched Vision 2020 way before George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, you know, which was a horrific incident. And, and you know, it just uh, reeks of the fact that some things need to change. And we'd already embraced that at the Edmonton Police Service. We announced 75 changes that we were working on to it. So for us, I think it really helped us, you know, move quicker. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, part of change is being able to disrupt. So I think it gives us the real ability to disrupt. But with that also comes the folks, as you mentioned, there's a lot of activism and, and activism is not all bad, but if it's ill-informed, mm -hmm. it can lead you in the wrong path, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and we've all seen it where crisis happens and everybody just dumps money into another sector. You know, right. I'll give you an example. In this incident, people were saying, well, you need to fund social services. Well, social services are already funded four to one to seven to one in policing now. I, I know that because we looked at that in government and that's yeah. right across. It's not about moving money around. It's about collective impact. You know, one of the highlights I think to watch right now, and I'm reading your, some of your studies and work in the, in the mental health field, mm -hmm. law enforcement, public health, it's coming out of the UK. Uh, it, I think I've spoken at all five of their conferences now. Uh, I think that's the future. I think uh, law, uh, public health has the ability to engineer, law enforcement have the ability to reverse engineer. We're the only police service in the world that has seconded a position to that entity to study, to get ahead of it. You know, somebody asked me the other day uh, in a media scrum, I was quite, a, you know, several months back, what would you do differently? I'd look at the structure. I'd probably take public health out of health and I take police out of the justice system and I take all your not-for-profits and I put them in a new entity, new ministry, whatever you want to call it. 
But mm -hmm. that separates the front end decision making from the back end. You'll still have authorities to push it into the back end. That's your hospitals, that's your your your, courts, yep. your correctional yep. systems. But we have no authority to force the front end systems to work together. And if you can work on the bookends, you'll shrink social services. But because it's it's the middle of it, but it needs to be looked at from a structural perspective and not just the fundamental thing about shifting money and multiple groups and organizations accountable for that. It, it just needs some focus. And, uh, you know, that's something that I just didn't dream up myself. That's something there was a lot of work being done mm -hmm. over several years to look at it, whether we'll ever get that. But the fact is, is we need some collective outcomes where we're doubling down on each other. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. And I guess just on the defund police, one of the questions somebody asked me was, because um, what, what really disheartened me about that was, you know, my friends who are police officers and, you know, the 99% of police officers that go out every day and risk their lives on behalf of the community being um, painted with the same brush. And so one of the questions um, that was asked and, and I know I know you've done so, a lot of work on this. Is how are how are you supporting um, police officers' mental health and well-being uh, <coughs> during the time of instability yeah, and uncertainty? That's a that's a great point, Mark. And I mean, obviously, our people are our biggest assets. So we've got a great reintegration program. We've got a great EFAS program. We've added staff in relation to that because the impacts of COVID, the impacts of all the other issues, uh, as we mentioned from other parts of the world, certainly have taken a toll. Some of our members, you know, have uh, obviously uh, feel pretty beat up and so, so they should because mm -hmm. some fairly, some unfairly. And, you know, we've, uh, along with our association and many others with our service, we've embraced the fact of having some independent oversight you know, police mm -hmm. discipline is something obviously it's always been taken fairly uh, very seriously. We have a civilian running my legal department that's over that oversees that now. Um, and those checks and balances, if we can get stronger in that, absolutely. That that's a good thing. That just creates more transparency, etc. And we've endorsed that. Um, but you know, there's nothing more that a good cop uh, hates more than a bad cop. There's yeah. going to be mistakes. There's going to be things we do wrong, and, and we need to be held accountable for that. Nobody's trying to sidestep that. That's something that we've always taken serious. But to blame and say that it's all cops are bad, to your point, mm -hmm. shouting you know, <laughs> obscenities and everything else at, at people, is that's, that's just not right. It's it's not right because, you know, the men and women that we have and, you know, when we're seriously and uh, significantly increasing our diversity. It's a very diverse uh, uh, police service, mm -hmm. especially when you counter civilians. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hold ourselves accountable for things we're responsible for. But I think at the same point is, uh, you know, COVID's uh, kind of uh, probably jacked that level of frustration up. And again, now yeah. it's not just that, it's people not wearing masks and we're supposed to wear mm. You know, people want to get arrest them and put them in jail. Or, you know, yeah. we all know where that's going to go. It's it, so. I mean, it's nice now finally, and certainly, I think our provincial government maybe has done some better work on that than other forms of government. But the only way out of the COVID thing is the vaccine, and now, just lo and behold, we're starting to get vaccine levels, and you know, things are starting to open up a bit. So. This too will pass, but to mm -hmm. your point, uh, our job number one is obviously the well-being of our people because without that, 
we become pretty ineffective, not only for looking after shells, but the, the people that we serve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can we, I'd like to talk about um, uh, a report that was commissioned uh, by the Edmonton Police Service and the City of Edmonton, and the report came out June of 2020. It's entitled the Edmonton Social Impact Audit, and um, you used uh, a, a social entrepreneurial B Corp organization called Help Seekers to collate uh, a significant amount of data uh, to highlight the amount of funding that we are, are pouring into the um, social safety nets in Edmonton. And so uh, maybe just talk a little bit about the impetus behind that as a police service um, and, and how this all came to be. And then I'd like to dive into some of the findings and, and then also some of the, the, the recommendations uh, moving forward, because I'm really interested in, in a few in particular. Yeah, no, I mean, that whole thing, as you mentioned, was uh, Dr. Alina Turner, um, you know, of Help Seeker. Um, it was a combination of, you know, me back in my old job, as you've mentioned, knowing uh, where to find the money, her building a company on FOIPing and a lot of public information. Um, and also for us to get some independence on that, because if that's just the police that lead with that, of course, it's flawed and, you know, it's, it's, it's biased, right. and it's, yeah. it's not reporting yeah. the thing. So it, the interesting part of that whole thing, uh, Mark, is that it's all public data. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's coming from various different things, CRA, government grants, our budget, city's budget, etc. It had uh, put in place uh, a piece where we had uh, an oversight committee with myself. It was the chief of staff of mental health and addictions for the province at the time. The chief of staff, uh, chief of staff of social services, um, you know, um, the CEO of uh, Homer Trust, which is you know largest housing uh, social housing yeah. uh, folks in, in Edmonton. So when we actually dug into this data and come back in. I was a little surprised how big the numbers were. I knew they were going to be big, but I didn't think they were going to be as big as they were. Um, the social safety net system, uh, obviously, by definition, um, is certainly something that comes right out of uh, Revenue Canada. And it's it's a, in Canada, the social safety net includes a range of programs, benefit and sports that advance well-being. So when you actually start to look at that, you, you start to see where the money is being spent. Uh, seven and a half billion uh in the city of edmonton you know uh, uh you know we're we're as police are uh, just not quite six percent of that spend in the total when you actually now the majority of that's funded by government right so mm -hmm. uh, the largest funders the uh, the province certainly you know the federal government plays a role and certainly um, the municipal government and those numbers are probably uh, low because we couldn't track some of the information right. because yep. uh, it's hard to get but I mean, it, it, it just basically made you ask a few questions is, are we getting the best bang for buck in what we're trying to uh, use our resources, both our people and our money in relation to that? And if we're spending that much money, we don't have a money problem here. It's moving money around is not gonna be the issue. And you know, and that's unfortunately where everybody kind of goes to because it's, it's something it's easy, right? Yeah. Something it, it, it alleviates it. but. It started to really open the eyes 
just how we as a police service used to need our voice of influence, not just our voice of authority. We need to figure out who we need to leverage and who we need to get underneath, not over top, yeah. but underneath. You know, give you an example of that domestic violence, probably the single with COVID is our single largest growth piece in 2020, uh, you know, over 9,600 calls for service. Uh, you know, something that the police can't solve. A lot of it's behind closed doors. Yeah. We're based on this report, there's 70 charities reporting to Revenue Canada that they're working in this space. Mm -hmm. When you count the not-for-profits and the for-profits, estimates are it could be double that into the 130s or 140s. Who are the 10, the 15 that we need to double down with? We need mm -hmm. to figure that out because yep. that working with our partners and getting underneath our partners is paramount to the success that we're going to get in community safety and well-being. So, this is to actually help us focus on what we need to do within the things that we control. And then who do we in relation to the community need to get behind that's willing to measure with us, put data on the line to look at some outcomes. And then we need to make sure that we do what we can to support them because it's just like playing a game of risk. <clears throat> you know, you put an army on every country, you know what you are, you're first out of the game. Yeah. <laughs> we got a game of risk going on here and we yeah. really don't even know what we're fighting anymore in a lot of cases. So I think it yeah. brings a little clarity to that. Well, I mean, you you, under, you understated the number. It's seven point five billion dollars per year. This is in Edmonton investments in social support and community services were identified. Six point one billion invested at Edmonton charities. Um, Two point one billion went to community and social services charities. Two hundred ninety-eight million in public and private foundations were identified. I think it was 1.5 billion was estimated to be spent on addiction and mental health services. I imagine that's broadly. First responders, 782 mil million. Uh, Three billion comes from direct government cash transfers to individuals in Edmonton on social assistance, low income, unemployment, disability, or senior financial supports. And I, I just want to speak to. So there's 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 your leadership in the police, and then uh, I work in the charitable sector. And I'm also on the board of the Edmonton Community Foundation. And we, this past fiscal year, we just had our annual general meeting today. Um, it was the most amount of money we've given out in a year is $35 million to charities in Edmonton, which is, you know, the, the number is phenomenal. $300 million has been dispersed since in the last 30 years. Um, but and I'm on the granting committee for the Edmonton Community Foundation, and so I see um, the plethora of organizations that come through. And to your point, um, when we talk about transformation, um, there's no difference in my mind between the way in which charities and NGOs operate. Um, it's analogous to the police force as well. There needs to be a complete rethink, in my opinion, on how these systems work, because the ultimate goal is to improve outcomes for the most marginalized population groups, not not to be the ones that are successful in getting a one-time limited grant from the province or the Edmonton Community Foundation. Um, and that's where, that's where the systems thinking comes in and so I guess when I look at this, I mean, the number speaks for itself, but when I go into 
some of the recommendations, and I have a question for you about, about this being produced, is I ask myself, you know, is this not something that the provincial government could have or should have put together themselves? Why, why, why both the city of Edmonton and the Edmonton police versus the provincial government? Well, you could pick any government, right? The end of the day, the, I think you nailed it on the head is um, all three levels play in this space. And you know, what it basically says, the monies are not coordinated and the monies aren't getting the outcomes that we want. So I think uh, for us to do it in relation with our police commission was a chance for us. We've been saying here since, well, I was in here in 2019, we've been saying all along the system needs to work differently. And as you mentioned early on, some of the things that transpired, it certainly give the ability to do a deeper dive on this. The reason that we did the deeper dive was to exactly force that discussion at the province to take the lead because mm -hmm. they're the largest funder, you know, and the other potential governments to play along with it as well to, to look at it. Because ideally, you know, as you said, it doesn't matter if it's funded for the not-for-profit, the Edmonton Police Service or anybody else. There's one taxpayer and there's one citizen. And at the end of the day, generally in governments across this country, six ministries generally spend, you know, anywhere from 80 to, to 90% of the, of the provincial budget. And yet we've never looked at the collective spend for actually outcomes. And a lot of it's to, to the point. And, you know, you mentioned granting a lot of the grants don't have real measurable outcomes, uh, yep. let's say in yours in particular, but let's just say grants in mm -hmm. general. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even that, if you really want to look at what's going on in the UK in this, they're actually doing part of their RFP now that part of their grants and their RFP is have to be 40% on local impact for their universities. What does that mm -hmm. change overnight? That change mm -hmm. that you work on things that are actually crisis now, rather than things that are nice to have. And, uh, I just think it's not to blame anybody. Though that wasn't no. the intention. No. That, go, that goes nowhere. The point is, <clears throat> is in business, <clears throat> there's a lot of mergers and amalgamations that can happen here. We need the resources and we need the people, but we actually need to work a whole lot differently collectively. <clears throat> and that's where we put the, the people at the center and then we measure exactly what the success is, not by how many bed nights we have not by how many people we take in how many people we give x y and z or how many people we put in custody <coughs> it's got to be a portion of that measured by how many people that we've actually created a successful environment towards independence yeah and i guess back to the the leadership and courage part and 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 putting yourself out of a job i mean i think this is for me the crux of the the transformational issue you know, you have a lot of different people in a lot of different positions um, that are tasked to do a job. And, and then again, to your point, this isn't about blaming people or pointing the finger or saying all these things that are wrong. It's about how do we optimize taxpayer dollars? How do we optimize philanthropic dollars? And And for me, somebody that's in you know, I've worked for the Alberta Mental Health Foundation. I've worked for now the CEO of the Glenrose Rehab Hospital Foundation. And when I go to a donor and I say, hey, I want you to invest X dollars into Y program, I need to know that 
the system or systems, Alberta Health Services in this example, have coordinated their planning so that, you know, these extra dollars are the margin of excellence that ensure that I can have faith that those dollars are needed. Um, and when I look at this report, I'll be honest, I, I think to myself, um, cynically, you know, why aren't we taking a larger chunk of human resources and financial resources to really dig into this in a more fulsome way? And I think maybe that's where the immediate actions for consideration come in and we can talk about that. Um, so so can, I, can I just go through some of the... the, the um, Sure. I, I can give you just just before you do that, yeah. Mark, give you a little context because this is, I think, something that you know you've done a considerable amount of work in in your studies in here. But take the mental health piece. Let's just yeah. mental health and addictions because you don't know how closely linked they are, right? Yeah. Let's just think about that in context. Let's not even put it in a government. Let's use all governments so we're not looking like we're we're pointing one government. Yeah. But if health budget, it's let's I think it might even been in that report six point three percent of its budget to public health, but let's say a large part of that's mental health and addictions. Let's just say that's the expenditures. Yeah. And the reality is, as you know, that's hard to measure what success looks like, but let's yeah. then figure out what is the, by not doing anything, where is that money spent? So that 6.3 or whatever it is, let's say five to 7% expenditure shows up in the expense balance sheet. It's probably 60 to 80% of the education cost. It's probably sixty to eighty percent or higher in the in the in the justice costs. It's a significant portion of the social services costs. So when you look across the systems, how that money actually expedites and compounds by not investing up front, mm -hmm. that expenditure is huge. And what happens is, you know, justice starts dumping their own money into mental health and addictions that maybe now is not coordinated with health. Yeah. Social services dumps their own money in. Education dumps their own money in. <clears throat> so think about how if you actually effectively looked at that from a front end and a back end of the systems versus these ministries that have been existed for 50 plus years. I tell you where this came to me from. I was at that social finance con a conference and it was a, I think it was a lady from OPEC that was actually okay. talking. Yeah. Don't quote me on this. And she said, you know, we were doing this work with government. It was somewhere in the States. And we, we had these ideas and we wanted to do this and or it might even have been in Canada, actually. I'm not even sure. But anyways, we said we had these ideas and they said, well, yeah, but we got to put these into our ministries. And, and she says, well, that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, we, we, we take a complex problem, we come up with mm -hmm. some solutions and then we got to compartmentalize them. So everybody right. has a piece of the solution rather than putting the solutions in the same bucket and just deal with it with the individual in the center. That's never got ever looked at or done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We've moved money around. We've done it quicker. We handed out more grants, more money, broken the problem down. <clears throat> you know, look at the drug problem that we have. And, you know, and I was in a press conference today, you know, legalizing marijuana because it was going to take away the black market. Well, no, that didn't happen. But crime mm -hmm. didn't get a big impact either. You know, cheesy sales went up. Let's be honest. But when you actually... <laughs> When you actually looked at that, now they want an opioid and we want to deal with fentanyl and we want to have the strategy deal with fentanyl. Well, the big problem in Edmonton right now is meth and it's disproportionately mm -hmm. driving violence. And our mm -hmm. violence within the violence is, is significantly higher. But 
the person that uses fentanyl could use meth and probably does and probably uses marijuana and every other drug. We got to maybe start focusing on the commodity and focus on the individuals, which I think is exactly what you're saying is if we start looking at this on how we tackle that group where 20% of the individuals, we have the most chance of success and then we work down, I think mm -hmm. we have a better chance of solving this rather than jumping to a commodity and say, you know, we're just going to make sure that the commodity uh, is available or whatever we want to say. So I think it just needs some new thinking. Yeah. And so I just want to walk through, um, I mean, the first um, consideration really struck me. And I guess I just say before this, you know, I spent, I spent four years with the mental health foundation, really working towards a collective impact model around integrated youth services. Um, and, and, and actually this report speaks to, to that, you know, the, the hub and spoke model and, you know, a question for you, I have just before I jump into that, cause this has always struck me as, um, something I haven't wrapped my mind around is that, you know, there's a, a collective impact model in which, you know, it's, it's almost like there's no, it's almost like there's no hierarchy. Everybody comes together and it's collaborative in nature. Um, communities come together. We share resources. We look at where we can optimize resources. We look at where we are duplicating resources. But what I struggled with <laughs> is that I, I always felt like there needs to be some sort of hierarchy within the collective impact model in order for a leader to drive the troops forward. How, and how do you, so how do you think about that? Well, I, I think that's, you're exactly saying the same thing I am is if you had a separate ministry where we had a collective mandate, you probably mm -hmm. get to that right off the hop. In an absence of that, you got to have collective partnerships where you're signing MOUs and, and it's not yeah. about collaboration is great till it digs into somebody's wallet. Let's be honest. Yes, I understand. <clears throat> Let's be honest. Partnership is where you win and lose together. You invest in each other, you measure each other and one doesn't win unless the other one wins and you lose together. There's a difference between partnership where we sign on the bottom line and we're going to put our resources in and we're going to actually give it our best effort knowing that we might fail. Collaboration is, you know, we get together, we talk, well, you know, I can do this, I can do that. Mm -hmm. No accountability. And at the end of the day, it generally leads to somebody else has another priority that they pull their resources out and they're off to the next crisis. Yeah. We're missing and then, and, partnership. And then, the, um, and I hate to be critical. Well, I don't hate to be, uh, I'm happy to be critical of, um, that's, that's been, that's been the, 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 in my opinion, the community mental health um, model for the last couple decades where it's collaborative. We come up with, uh, I won't name plans, but plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then when the rubber hits the road, all the people that made the plan are gone. And then the, the idea is, you know what we need to do? We need to come back together and we need to make another plan. And so, you know, I like what you're saying about identifying, and this, this, is, this, this is where competition for me comes into play. It's about identifying high-performing organizations, high-performing individuals that have the right ethics, 
and the right agenda about what they're trying to do to impact society. And it's about bringing those people together. So I, I guess this is, this is your first recommendation. I'd like to hear where you're at with this. Um, if, if any of this has moved forward, if that's okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, we're still waiting. We haven't, I mean, the city's obviously got to respond to, to part of that, but certainly, you know, I, I think our intention was to get the province to look at it deeper, to, you know, get the rest of the numbers and look at it. But you're, you're exactly right. I mean, <clears throat> if you think of it from an investing perspective, and if you're investing for your retirement, you're going to put your money with somebody you trust, somebody that's got proven experience, and somebody that, you know, is going to look after your best interests. We don't have that right now in this space. It's a competition uh, basically for money. And, you know, I think uh, with some of the things, whether it's MOUs or signed agreements and partnership, or it's a new ministry structure, I think the structure, you know, one of the things I learned in government, and I think you've probably seen this too, I think it was The Economist, and it had this Pac-Man diagram. It says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw that. So yeah. And then past that, it said incentive eats both of them. And then it says structure eats all of them. We haven't oh, put haven't structure in success first. We always work about the culture and we work on the things that, you know, nobody's ever solved. I think we just need a different approach and it's about finding the leaderships and the champions to actually drive it. I mean, those that just want to have status quo and sit in a chair, I mean, I think that time in a time of crisis or a time we're going to austerity and everything else, it's time to reinvent that. And I mean, yes. It's no better time than now because of the money. It's kind of like Churchill said, I think it was, you know, people were out of money. Now we have to think. I mean, here's the <laughs> perfect opportunity to actually take a dive at this and go after it. But it's not going to happen if we start with everything's a status quo. So we tried to lead by that example on a couple occasions. Uh, we've already repurposed $28 million of our budget to focus yep. on the front end community safety well-being. It's the first one in Canada in policing. And then, you know, when although it was growth, and I want to be clear, it was growth. We gave up $11 million of growth, you know, council. There's two things in relation. It's the time of COVID, so we have to be fiscally responsible. But the purpose of giving that up was to hope others would come to the table, maybe with some of their growth. And let's pool that money and say, mm -hmm. you know, what can we do differently than we're not doing now? It's not to double down on what we have, because yeah. that's just going to potentially not get into the outcomes. But... I think we're we're in a prime example where the timing, you know, <clears throat> coming in, you know, from a farming community in Manitoba originally, uh, now's the time to get the combines in the field and get the crops off. Because if we miss the opportunity of COVID to reinvent and rethink some of the approaches, we're never going to get them right. I want to I, I want to go over these, and we don't have to talk about where they're at, but I I, I want to advocate for them. Um, on behalf of the work that you've done, because I'm a hundred percent in support of of most of these considerations. Number one, in particular, and I want to read it for for the listeners: um, develop an evidence-based, integrated investment framework for any funded or government-delivered interventions, programs, services, or benefits. All investment should flow through a consistent procurement and performance management process overseen with strategic governance provided by the community systems integration table. Presumably that's a new group. Philanthropic, which I'm glad you included, and other government funders should be encouraged 
I love this too, to co-invest slash stack through the same mechanism to maximize impact. I think that if you if if we could get that right, um, that in and of itself as a consideration would be such an improvement um, to the system because I w- w- the game I play, if we're going to call it a game, is you're trying to support a massive health system. You want to go to the community and ask them to improve patient outcomes. And even at that level, to coordinate between site leadership at the hospital, then get sign off from AHS executive leadership, and then have somebody within the healthcare system who's probably not a business person operation. This is very, very challenging. And so if you could get provincial government buy-in and a group of thought leaders to help navigate this, even if it was in a um, you know, pilot phase, I, I know I would be extremely supportive, as would I'm sure a number of other philanthropic leaders um, in the community. So I'm wondering, I, I would I would imagine our provincial government is would be receptive to something like this. But is this is this something that you are now taking to city council? <clears throat> to get support for we've taken it to council um and presented to council we we own the report as in the service and the commission um i think the whole thing though to your point it's it's built on an ecosystem for change that has data in the center and it has all the mechanisms outside government uh to actually do innovation so the problem is within government, in any kind of government, <clears throat> you're around election cycles and there's really mm-hmm. very little uh, appetite for failure, right? In yeah. innovation, you got to be able to try some things. So the whole thing's designed around using a center of excellence concept. Um, you know, we built an accelerator on just the supremacy here from, from our foundation is yeah. to actually try some innovation. And, and with that, um, you know, the reality is if you get this right with every country in the world struggling with it, you're actually creating a bit of a commodity that you can actually export because mm-hmm. these social solutions are in demand right now and you start to attract big thinkers. One of the proposals that we put into government, we actually were approached and led by our foundation by alchemists. Alchemists are from Silicon Valley and they run the largest accelerators in the world. I think they're in 10 countries. The, this is the market that needs to be gone after because if you focus on this just to your point about the business if you focus on just revenue which is obviously the economy or you just focus on expenditures which a large people call social issues if you do those in isolation you either have no not enough money your social issues are growing too fast it's really about net dollars where you actually checks and you link those together and talk about a net economy which is you know, I always use the analogy, would you rather have a $500 million business that loses $100 million, or would you rather have a $5 million business that makes a million? We, we just got to simplify it and we got to create the ability to take risk. We got to create the ability to fail, but not at, you know, without considerable due diligence to go into that, uh, to, to, to the research to do it. And it's basically built on co-design, co-measurement and co-evaluation set up front using public, private, and philanthropy to drive the change. And I think if we can get that right, to your point, 
and we focus on those things that we're most likely needed to deal with. And if you follow police calls for service, and if we had to focus on five things, we'd focus on trauma, mental health and addictions, domestic violence, education, employment, and we focus, you know, basically on the literacy and the education piece of keeping kids in school. If we get those five things right, we wouldn't have to do much more. And Dr. Turner actually modeled this in just relation to, for the city of Edmonton coming up with putting a model around it. If you just change the hierarchy and investment, you should be able to get better outcomes. I think she said for $1.2 billion less. And wow. that's just to the whole point that you said is just obviously collective impact and doing things different. Um, you know, get rid of our own egos and our own titles and say, mm -hmm. let's, let's give it a whirl and, uh, and not be sidetracked, uh, by those that uh, obviously have a vested interest for personal reasons. Yeah. And the ego piece is a, if you can solve the ego piece, <laughs> let's go into business together. Yeah. Um, so where do you see this report um, <coughs> landing? Do you, do you see that? Do you see when I think about uh, the charitable sector, um, are, is there going to be uh, consultation with the charitable sector? How, how do you how, how do you how do you move this forward from from today on? Um, and how much of a priority is it for for you as the Edmonton Police Service? Well, I, I, it's extremely high priority. I, uh, if I you know could pick up what the path I would hope that would be is I I'd like to see the province take a lead on it dig deeper get the rest of the numbers that still need to be filled in bring the stakeholders together and say okay we're going to look at this in a different uh, perspective and then you actually can you know you don't have to eat the elephant one bite at a time don't try to take the whole thing on mm -hmm. but let's try it in two or three areas or, or one or two areas and let's go after it a bit and see how it proves out because <clears throat> i think it's it just lacks a bit of different thinking and some innovation. And I think it could give us the Alberta advantage. I mean, at a time where, you know, we got large deficits in every government in this country and we're looking for new things and new solutions, I think this has never been a better time. Uh, you know, the markets are all about knowing when to get in and knowing when to get out. Mm -hmm. I don't think we'd ever have a better time to put some investing into this to, to do things differently. And the good part is, is you're betting house money because we're already spending the money. So it's just yeah, yeah. thinking differently. I was looking at um, those numbers and it, because I think it was $3 billion for social assistance welfare. <clears throat> and to me, it almost made the case for uh, universal basic income by looking at $7.5 billion. How, how do you think about, or do you think about universal basic income? Because you take um, $7.5 billion um, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not an advocate for universal basic income, yeah. but um, there could be an argument made for it based on those numbers. Yeah, I mean, I've seen this argument, and I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I think we've got some things to do before we jump all into one particular solution. Um, you know, and, and I mean, when we showed that $3 billion, when you talk about Asia and the people are vulnerable that are really required to, to live on that, I don't think anybody, certainly in the context of this report, said that, we need to change that and forget about those people. Yeah, there's a reason. There's a lot of people who need that support, and we need to Absolutely. get the right people. And you know, and I and I think that's it. But if you look at 
just looking at it from a universal perspective and just throwing all your eggs in one basket, let me just give you an example of that. The drug trade in the city of Edmonton with the CERB payments, and this is from intelligence, this isn't just from me giving you my perspective, thrived because there was more money. You have people that are struggling. And what are they going to do at times of struggling when you don't have the systems in place? They're going to use what resources and what money they have to get to support their habit. So it thrived. You know, those people that, you know, said, oh, the borders are closed. There's more tainted drugs on the street. The borders were always close to illegal drugs. That hasn't Mm -hmm. changed. Mm -hmm. Organized crime finds ways to infiltrate. Meth is extremely cheap. Uh, You know, so it's going to find its way to the streets. Universal income for the wrong people and just throwing a one thing out there to be the solution. I think that's our problem. We look for a magic bullet. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's where we get it. We focus on the 20% first in the areas that we can, you know, eat the elephant one uh, bite at a time and, and we reduce it and we go after it and we're relentless to making sure that it's people centric and it focuses on individuals. Uh, and, and I think there's a huge, huge opportunity there. Um, things like minimum standards that you're starting to maybe now see. Mm-hmm. Uh, you or I, we want to stay at a hotel room. Um, you know, we get a 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock checkout time. Our vulnerable sector in a shelter, they're out in the streets at six in the morning. Mm-hmm. Where are they going to go? And that's not blaming the shelters. Let's, because mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, they're doing their best they can. But without minimum standards and minimum requirements, what do you get? You get a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion. And unfortunately, you don't really get the ability to start to solve and get the right people to the right services. So I think there's so many things that can be done um, that don't cost a lot of money. It just takes some innovation and some thinking. And it needs the people to stop doubling down on thinking that we have this right right now. Yeah. And and so I'm actually interested because CERB in some ways was a a um, beta test for universal basic income, right? Like, and so you, you're you saying, and you have data, because I had read some, I had just read some articles about that. And I I actually was, it might have been a, a political bend on it when I, when I read it, like maybe as a conservative argument for, you know, giving out taxpayer monies and that's increasing um, individuals using substances. But but you're you're saying you have the data on that that well, we had like, intelligence intelligence you have in- intelligence yeah. yeah yeah so when when I say that don't take it think that I think it's all a bad thing because I think in certain areas it's it's a very good solution yes no people, I, yeah yes there's people that need it but there's if you just use it as a blanket solution it could compound the problem right the people that need the services that we're talking about the most. Yes, yes. So, so I, I think that's the only rider I'd put on that. And I mean, let's also face it, serve in some instances, really help people that were struggling. So I'm not going to say that it was all bad either. But yes, yes. I think it's, it's again, uh, the point I was trying to make on that is to throw a blanket solution out and think it's going to be the be all end all. Right. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a nuanced, um, right. a, a nuanced, a nuanced thing. I just uh, now that we've solved um, all the systems problems in Edmonton, um, just wanted to ask you a couple more um, singular questions. How do you think about uh, harm reduction um, in, in the current climate in Edmonton? Obviously, it's it's been a, a political hot potato. Um, how do you think about it as an Edmonton Police Service? 
you're you're not sparing any easy questions today. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, being fairly familiar with harm reduction, I think harm reduction is an absolute part of the equation. I think the problem is is when we think harm reduction, just like uh, you know, universal basic income right. is my solution. Yeah. That's where we. That's where I think we we got to balance it. So you know, having a portion of harm reduction, having a portion of prevention, you know, that whole intervention, that whole treatment, you know, yeah. and that whole recovery oriented systems, which ties into people places to live. I think it. We need a system. We don't need streams and and heavily invest in one stream. So mm -hmm. I think we need to make some other investments to balance the equation to actually, you know, get the full um, opportunity from all of these things to work in a systems perspective. So I don't think we have that quite right. Uh, and for instance, you know, the announcement I was at today with the 35 uh, <clears throat> medical beds, that's long overdue in the city, long mm -hmm. overdue. Mm -hmm. And so I think, it's when we start putting those things together as a as a system, we start to get success. Yeah, and I mean everything's been so hyper politicized uh, these days. I was at a conference; it was actually put on. I think it was by the United Conservative Party and Marshall Smith, the chief of staff for addiction and mental health, was there. It was what Jason Kenney made an announcement, but they had invited. Um, I believe his name was Nuno Capez, and he was the one of the leaders of implementing Portugal's. Uh, decriminalization policy and harm reduction policy. And he was very much talking about exactly what you said is prevention, intervention, treatment, harm reduction. It's a holistic look at uh, treating substance misuse. And what my, what I get annoyed by is that, you know, there's the abstinence folks on one side, and then there's the harm reduction folks on the other side. And we're missing nuance in today's conversations. And, and the solution is not one or the other. It's it's a collection of those things. And so I, I appreciate you saying that. But now for another hard question, just because I think you actually secretly like it. Um, what what are your thoughts on the decriminalization of, of drugs like they did in Portugal? Have you looked into that in terms yeah. of efficacy? And, and maybe talk about that a little bit. Well, I think you just answered that with the last question. Um, decriminalization works if you got the systems in place. Yes. Decriminalization without the system actually could backfire on you. It might not be a great decision because it's not just going to change anything. So sometimes right now that criminalization piece um, actually gets some people some help. So without the systems in place, I you know, and back when I was president of AACP last year, we made a statement that we don't think decriminalization at this point in time is the right solution okay. but that doesn't mean that decriminalization at some point shouldn't be but when you have the like as you just said the portugal model had those systems in place before mm -hmm. they actually looked at mm -hmm. it if you jump to decriminalization without the systems in place you potentially have a good opportunity to have more chaos than you already have mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. do i think that's where we should be working towards yes if you look at decriminalization on simple possession right now there's a prosecutorial, a prosecutorial uh, director right now, a directive that we don't charge simple possession. Haven't for several, several months, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it hasn't changed anything right now. Um, but do, is that a, is that a lofty goal to get to? Is it a wrong goal? I don't think it's a wrong goal, but it's like doing that without systems in place. I certainly have some serious concerns uh, 
with just jumping again to the far end of the spectrum without the plan on how we're going to get people treatment and people help when they're actually struggling in a crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right now you have a de facto policy on simple possession. Is that? Yeah, for the most yeah. part, unless it's yeah. you know uh, tied up with other things of a more serious nature, they don't go ahead, and and that's been yeah. for several months. Um, and of course, you know it's a whole different thing. Uh, uh, you know some of the drug types that we're seeing right now, and particularly the meth, and some of the meth linked to some of the violence and the car mm -hmm. chases and the guns, and you know makes normal people do not normal things and it's it's one of those drugs right now that's uh, certainly more on the western side of uh yeah North america um which is a significant concern and just lastly and then i'm going to ask you a couple maybe more enjoyable questions but you know so my cousin best friend growing up um died of a fentanyl overdose three years ago and you know now meth is becoming more and more prominent, you know, how, how are we supposed to like, is there a solution to the, the drug problem? Because I find that, you know, okay, you have like, everybody carries a naloxone kit. That's, it's not really a solution. It's just a life-saving measure. Um, you know, kids are using marijuana and they always will. And there, there's there's fentanyl or there's some other drug laced with that. Um, if it's not one drug, it's another. Like, I just I, I I'm I'm skeptical about this. What the solution is? And, yeah, I think your point is bang on. But again, deal with it in percentages. And I think you, you've you hit, in my personal opinion, you've hit the solutions. It's to design a system that has portions of all of this. So if, if your family member is struggling, there's a place to get that individual and help before they harm themselves. If it's a matter of keeping, you know, a person alive, then you got to have access to your Narcan, your Naloxone. Today we announced they're going to flood Edmonton with some nasal spray, obviously, to mm -hmm. reduce that. But unless there's some checks and balances to connect that, that can become a perpetual cycle too, right? Where they're overdosing three or four times in one day in many cases. So there needs to be a mechanism where people that know the individual best it can find the services that they actually need to get the help they need to try to intervene and do the right thing. And part of that is where a lot of times is the first responder. And that's why yeah. I said, if we had some authorities in the front end of the system rather than put them in the criminal justice system, which could further spiral it, mm -hmm. uh, we need some mechanisms and some authorities to actually uh, use some of those intervention points to hopefully get some treatment and some help. But that's depending on two things. A, you have the treatment and B, you have the mechanism to get them there. And, you know, and certainly uh, a lot of that's going to be educating some of the people in relation to the people that know them best. Use an example of your cousin. A lot of times in these situations, unfortunately, um, people know that they're struggling. They just mm -hmm. don't know what to do, and they're, they're mm -hmm. helpless. And, I mean, uh, we've all seen it many, many times over, right? And, you know, addictions lead to to real harmful places sometimes. And, uh, and it's one of those things that grab a hold of you, and uh, we tend to lose a lot of people from it. So, uh, again, it's it's not a blanket solution, but it's it's options and options right. create 
options create increased chances of success and uh Will we ever fix it 100%? I don't think we ever will. But mm -hmm. can we reduce it and can we alleviate it? So, and count that? I think we can. And I, I think we can very quickly. Uh, but it's going to take a different approach than thinking it's just going to be, you know, supply, supply, supply. Right. Um, you know, what your, you know, most of our overdoses right now, I seen some data the other day, is. Um, uh, there happened in a residence owned by the individual or a residence owned by somebody between 70 and 80 percent giving somebody a house isn't going to solve that not that housing is not important because i want to make that very clear it is mm -hmm. but we tend to jump thinking there's an easy fix to some of this stuff but the actual fix is having some options and educating people on what the options are and making sure that those options are available in a time of need Thank, thank you for that. And um, I, I really appreciate this conversation. It's been uh, intellectually stimulating for me and um, um, I hope I hope somewhat for you as well. I'm just gonna end, I'm gonna end with this. Um, I was watching one of your lectures and you had referenced a book, The Black Swan. Um, and um, I'm just curious, um, talking about leadership and um, you're obviously a transformational leader, just what are some of the most influential uh, books that you've read that have really changed your perspective on on how to how to lead a, a complex organization. Yeah, um, that one's a good one. Um, I was fortunate. Um, I don't know, probably about five years ago, I was speaking on Bay Street, um, and it was on. I was had social change, and and Billy Bean from Moneyball was there. Mm, yeah. And he had the, the money ball and the data in relation to the sports and how that changed the face of sports. Uh, and I think uh, that is something that's resonated with me is, you know, I think what we've really missed the opportunity here is we have way more data and way more evidence available to us than we ever have. But it's kind of like we don't use it sometimes. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and we hide behind privacy, we hide behind all that. And, and right. I mean, uh, that's not the case when, when safety is at the issue. And I kind of equate it to uh, it's like driving down a gravel road in rural Alberta at night with no street lights, with your lights off, and you have the ability to turn your lights on, and you choose mm -hmm. not to. Well, then right. that's our fault, right? That's our right. fault. So I think that something that's resonated with me, that money ball. There's also a money ball on government as well, which is which is interesting. The five effective habits of of leadership, where there, there, I could like you can see in my background the why you can't. Folks won't be able to see it. Yeah, so, no. Several books on leadership, and uh, that's probably something I spend the most time is reading books on leadership and business. So um, I, I think it's just as long as you're reading and as long as you're staying current, uh, I think it's always brings new things uh, to the th uh, to uh, your repertoire, what you can actually look at, and that's something something I've been pretty fortunate, you know, and, and lucky, obviously. So, so let me let me get this straight. So, Moneyball, because you're a data guy, yeah. and uh, you're a big data guy, and um, so basically, what I'm taking away from this is you're equating yourself to uh, Brad Brad Pitt. Um, that, that's what so, I'm we're not going to go that far, buddy. <laughs> I, I, but I will give a good story uh, uh, when. Uh, uh, Billy Bean was giving that speech, and they uh, uh, he was saying that they were they phoned him and they wanted to do a movie on him, and you know, and 
they basically the producer phoned him and said, you know, we have somebody uh, that we think is going to portray you and we're going to have him call you tomorrow and just see if it's a fit. And and he basically, you know, he goes home and he says he's sleeping at night. Oh, my God, who's going to play me? Marty Feldman, who's going to play me? <laughs> then he says the next day he gets a call from Brad Pitt. And he says he gets off the phone after and he goes up to his wife. He says, see, honey, they know. i just tell you a quick story this happened like last week about about books behind your shelf so i'm we're doing this um initiative with the glen rose and yes and kickstand and casa called your your mental health our mental health so i'm on global news doing just a quick uh promotion for it and I got these bookshelves. I don't. I don't know if I'm still blacked out in your screen, but I got these. No, bookshelves. I can see them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got. I got these bookshelves behind me, and um, so I, they're all whatever, all over the place. I don't have them in any order, and so the next day, <laughs> I'm having my staff meeting, and um, my the the comms my comm staff says to me, you know, all I was looking at during that interview was the book over your shoulder, and it was Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, and so. <laughs> She's thinking, you know, you're supposed to go on there and look and sound like, you know, somewhat smart and intellectual. And you got Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code just screaming at Global News. <laughs> so as you, as you can see, I've put my more intellectual books up. <laughs> oh, that's a lesson uh, learned. It's, at this age, it's, for me, it's not how you play, it's how you look, right? <laughs> <laughs> get the right props yeah oh. well well chief mcphee it's been it's truly been an honor and a pleasure and i appreciate you so much taking the time and i think uh the way you look at your work um is inspirational and um if there's anything i can ever do to help or um, be a part of the change uh i'm just a phone call away so so kudos to you and, and keep it up no, I appreciate it, Mark, and thanks, uh, obviously, for taking this on and inviting me. And, uh, you know, I think I will follow up with that discussion now that I know you're on a few boards and a few not-for-profits. So I think, <laughs> I think it's going to be, you know, trying to get a consortium and willing to drive some change, right? And and people that, you know, think there's a better way. And I think when you have that group of people, I, I always say uh, brains get you to level one of the step ladder, and step two comes with uh, – uh, networking and clout and influence bring change so as you work your way up the ladder it's all about you know making sure that you resonate and get those folks that want to look at it differently because they truly care about making a difference for people and i think we're in a unique opportunity so i appreciate your time thank you have a good night take care bud